I'm Zach D'Amico. And I'm Carson Cook. And welcome to The New Auteurs, the podcast where we take the critical framework from the golden era of cinema and apply it to today's films and filmmakers. Typically, on each episode of The New Auteurs, we go deep on one director, writer, actor, or other filmmaker using a singular film as a case study in an attempt to understand their screen essence. That was really smooth with the typically. You slipped that in. I want the audience to know that you ad lid that. That was, mm-hmm. that was pure improv, impressive stuff. You, you took theater, I bet. Uh, I you bet. A little bit, just a little. So as the typically alluded to, today is a different episode. We have been away for about a month now, and we are coming back in the new year. But before we move on to 2021, and before we move on to a whole new leadership landscape. We're recording this on Tuesday, the night before the inauguration. We are going to look back one final time on the year 2020, and we are going to be counting down each of our top 10 things in movies. And it is as broad as that would imply. Things can be anything from the standard performances or best scenes that you often see. They could be things that the Oscars look at, like costumes, production design. They could be things that people don't usually write about and the Oscars don't look at uh, as pretty much the only limitations are our minds. I don't know how creative you were. I, uh, I have a decent mix of classic categories and then some, uh, some wild cards thrown in. How did you go about, I mean, this is such a broad thing, right? You saw, you probably saw hundred, 120 movies mm-hmm. that were released in 2020 and each of them are, you know, an average of an hour, 45 minutes, we'll say. And you just, top 10 things in those movies. How did you even, where did you start? Well, I mean, it is, it's tough to narrow down. And, you know, as I started looking through this, I obviously from the movies I really loved this year, the, you know, 10 to 20 movies that I really, really loved, I could have just picked, cherry picked things from those movies. And honestly, it would have been hard to narrow down bits and pieces of each of those movies. And And so what I decided to do was pick five things from that upper echelon of of movies. And I kind of just went with, what are the first five things I thought about? Uh, There's a a little bit of tweaking, but for the most part, I sat down and and wrote down the first five things that came to mind. The stuff that stuck with you, right? Yes, exactly. So, and and that's going to be half my list. And then the other half of my list is... Uh, there were a lot of great performances this year and it would have been very easy to pick performances from some of my favorite movies like Carrie Mulligan or Brian Dennehy or, uh, you know, you name it. And I decided what I wanted to do was think about those movies that I didn't like that much, but had elements that really stood out to me. In this case, performances that I thought were really excellent despite not connecting with the movie. So that is the other half of my list. And are they going to be sectioned off? Is it going to be the first I'm, five and the next five? Or uh, I did a quick, I did a quick uh, ordering, so it's going to go uh, one and one. Uh, it'll it'll alternate. It's amazing how you can spend twenty hours on some lists, and then when it comes down to it, it's just like a last minute gut decision. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fascinating you... art and science. Yes, yes. So how'd you uh, how'd you go about your list? So I started with my top 10 favorite things from each of my top 100 movies for a list of a thousand. And then I wouldn't know. Uh, no, I, so I started with 
kind of a, a basic breakdown of categories loosely modeled off the Oscar categories, but broader. So I had performances, visuals, audio, like audio kind of categories or things that would fall into the various audio Oscar categories, like sound and score. Then I had like moments, which was a combination of scenes or dialogue or, or moments for actors or whatever. And then kind of a, a, an other category, if anything, just really popped, popped out to me. Those are things that I think should be Oscar categories, but aren't, for example, fell into that category. And then I just, I, I just literally scrolled through my, my letterbox top movies list or my, all the movies I saw, I scrolled through them. And as things popped out, I wrote them down. So for that, for that, similarly for that first phase of like, what are all the things that I might want to include? It was largely a matter of like that sort of intuition and that like, what is sticking out strongest to me as I scroll through, because if I have to go through each movie and look at and consider each category for each movie, and then I remember the production design and so-and-so movie, then it pro- you know, I'm sure it was really technically sound and I thought it was great in the moment, but if it didn't stick with me enough to have it pop out when I read the movie's title, then, you know, it probably doesn't des- deserve to be on a top 10 list given all its competition. So, mm-hmm. and when I did that, I really only had about 15 or 20 things that truly felt like they they deserved to be on the list. And it was mostly a simple matter of whittling it down from there. So that's good. I, I was worried. I, I considered doing it the way you described. And I was very worried that it was going to wind up with me writing down a hundred things and then basically being where I started. So it's helpful. Like it's helpful to know actually that you're like when I start ranking performances, I always end up with so many. But when I was doing this, I knew in the back of my mind that I didn't, I didn't want like four movies production design or seven. Like I knew I probably only wanted one or two of each thing, Mm -hmm. except maybe performances. Right. And so when I'm listing costumes, once I list the thing, that's clearly the best costume of the year for me, even if I come across another dozen that I really loved, I'm not going to write them down because they're not going to get on the list. You know what I mean? So it's actually a little bit freeing to have so many different categories because I know it has to be the best of the best of whatever thing it was. So I, I have some honorable mentions before we jump in. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, go ahead and go, go through those. I, I hit 10 and I said, good, I'm done. I'm this done. is, this is my list. So uh, let's, let's hear your honorables. Uh, I'm only going to mention the couple I think that may go under the radar. So, and, and, and a few others. So one is the production desi- design in the platform, which is, I think one of the earliest movies I watched in quarantine which is somewhat fitting. It's a Netflix film and the production design of this platform that goes down hundreds of stories. It's essentially a prison. I mean, the entire movie is literally centered around it and also figuratively centered around it. And I just think it wouldn't be as engaging if it, if it didn't like hook you immediately with that visual. So I thought that was fantastic. The costumes in uh, Martin Eden, mm, mm-hmm. the Italian period piece, really, really swept me away. The production design in Mank, which is not going to go overlooked, but I still wanted to mention it because I am, I've taken a very strong recent interest in old Hollywood ever since uh, my wife and I moved a couple blocks away from both the old MGM and RKO uh, lots. And in one of the scenes in Mank, you can actually see the gate that we walk by like once a week, which, which is pretty neat. So I thought that was great. And then the last one I'll mention is just the Rudy scene, the Rudy Giuliani scene, because it is <laughs> the most zeitgeisty thing. It mm-hmm. is, 
I could not have imagined at any point in the last four years when everyone was trying to every while the rest of the world made really low hanging fruit jokes and like a lot of comedians and Twitter people capitalized on like really very basic level stuff. I feel like the film world was trying to really thoughtfully engage with what Trump meant and what the era meant and how we move forward from it and how we like engaged with each other with empathy. And then the most impactful movie like on our culture and on our politics was Borat too. And I just like, I love that. I absolutely love that. So, so those are my, those are my honorable mentions. Those are all, yeah, those are great, uh, great choices. The Rudy scene, that is a, you know, not, not my favorite scene from the year, but maybe like you said, the most, maybe the most important scene yeah. of the year to, <laughs> right? to like real life, which is such a strange, strange thing to, to I I watched a, I watched a, I recently watched a David Ehrlich knockoff video, which was actually very, very good. Uh, he, he acknowledged that Ehrlich was the greatest of these video countdowns, the, uh, but, but his video was very good and it included the Rudy scene. And I found myself getting like emotional <laughs> and I like, just being like, Maria Bakalova, you are a hero. You are an American hero. And just getting very, very into it. So uh, clearly it stuck with me. So do you want, you want to jump in with your number 10? Sure. So by number 10, I'm going to start with um, with a performance. And again, these performances from movies that I do not like very much. And the movie in this instance is Kajillionaire, the Miranda July film, which, you know, it, I'm, it it's not a bad movie. Uh, I think it's hard to pass judgment like that. It was just a little it, too far from my wavelength for me to handle and to really get on board with. It really centers around this Evan Rachel Wood performance that is, she's doing something, but I just couldn't connect with it at all. And her name is Old Dolio. And and honestly, it kind of <laughs> lost me there. Uh, but Gina Rodriguez is really, really great in it uh, as, as this young woman who kind of falls in with these strange drifters slash con artists and she feels totally real in this movie which is unusual because this situation is uh not one that seems like it could ever possibly exist at least for me like what is happening in kajillionaire seems so divorced from reality and obviously a lot of movies are divorced from reality but within the world of the film, you can still kind of lock on and be like, yeah, this is a, uh, this is what's happening. I'm, I, I see where they're going with this. And this movie just feels, I, I just couldn't get on board with it, but Rodriguez is really good, feels really human and, and plays off of everybody really well. And especially plays off of Evan Rachel Wood in a way that I think really elevates Wood's performance in, in, in an impressive way. And uh, and really was the only thing that kept me kept me watching. So uh, Gene Rodriguez always always good and and good here in Kajillionaire. Sometimes it is that performance. Sometimes a performance in a movie you don't like is is just a higher quality than the movie. Like the movie is is just like relatively pedestrian, poorly made, nothing special, and you just have like a very good actor who got paid a bunch of money and put some effort in and they rise the, the level of the movie. But other times it is very much like that a movie isn't your speed, but that the performances just 
it's exact opposite. And it is, it's that way purposefully, right? That's like, a, it's a very common tool that filmmakers use to sort of draw these juxtapositions and whether it's fish out of water or, or what, but sometimes that's like, you know, the performance can work for you because it's very specifically on a different wavelength in the movie. I'm curious, do you think Gina Rodriguez is ever going to get, ever going to have a big breakout film role? Like a, a big star moment in movies, the way that she did on TV with Jane the Virgin. Jane the Virgin. I mean, I mean, it feels like she should. They they set up that uh, what was it, Miss Miss Bala, Miss, right? Miss Bala, yeah. To to be that, and that movie kind of flopped at least domestically, I believe. Um, but I, I, I mean, I, she's in the zone where she could. Um, I mean, she but... voiced Velma in Scoob, so. If if theaters were open, Pretty she big. would be a yes. superstar right now. Yeah. Yes, but uh, but I mean, she she's but it's interesting that it's interesting that she picks this project and she was in she was part of the ensemble in Annihilation, which she's really excellent in, and you know she's doing really good work as kind of a supporting character. She's got the chops to be a star and and to be the headliner, but but I appreciate her doing uh, doing work like this and uh, and and she really kind of bridges the gap that let me enjoy this movie really at all fair enough i have not seen it but it so it premiered at sundance last year correct mm-hmm. and it it very much sundance movies are often not bad but very specific and even the people that really like them will often admit you might not like this if if it doesn't work for you it's just not going to work for you yeah and i was uh, and to be fair you know i was a miranda july novice and maybe i needed to work my way through her filmography in some way to kind of to kind of see what she's doing but uh you know maybe i'll go back maybe not who knows fair enough all right i will jump into my number 10 it is so i for warning i found hopefully creative ways to cheat throughout mm. so my most common is a, a number of times i paired a moment in like a scene with an, a performance because I thought it was the best moment of the performance and the best moment of the film. Sure. sure. I digress. This one, my number 10 is a series of quotes that I found to be <laughs> either, I'm going to pick one and that'll be my okay. pick so that okay. I can't be called a coward. Sure. Sure. But I'm still going to equivocate and, and then list some others. It's, it's quotes from the move, the documentary Hopper Wells which was shot in the 70s by Orson Welles on the set of The Other Side of the Wind, his final movie, which went unfinished for decades up until a couple years ago when it was released on Netflix. And he shot this on set with Dennis Hopper, who was then very young, just coming off of Easy Rider. And he was shooting the last movie, I believe, in South America. He flew him up brought him to this big house where they were filming a lot of the party scenes from the other side of the wind. Orson Welles is never on. It's just the two of them talking for two hours. Orson Welles is never on camera. You just hear his voice because he's also directing it. He slips in and out of the persona of Orson Welles. And then the persona of Jake Hannaford, the director character from the other side of the wind, which many people saw as being modeled off of Orson Welles. You really couldn't tell the difference. It was just sort of the elder statesman, very arrogant and very full of knowledge and wisdom and, and questioning of Dennis Hopper. 
and they just talked for two hours and they talked about life. And it's certainly indulgent in, in ways. It's, it's very representative of its era, the 70s, to very powerful white men uh, who like to wax philosophical and maybe sometimes think they're deeper than they are, for sure. But there are these moments of like very, very concise, illuminating comments. And so the, the one that I wanted to share first, and it would be the one that I pick, is particularly relevant in 2020, which is why I picked it and why I picked it as my number 10. And that is they're debating the definition of movies. And at one point, Orson Welles just says, movies are what you pay for a ticket for and go in and sit down and watch. And in a year when obviously theaters are closing, streaming is rising, HBO Max, you know, Warners are sending all their movies to streaming and people are debating the small acts series, as you alluded to in uh, today's published anthology, Best of 2020 that you, you published on Rough Cut. Everyone is debating the definition of movie and just a simple statement like that, although it is obviously dated because none of these other things existed except for TV and even that was so, so different 50 years ago. Uh, but it just, I really appreciated the simplicity of it, even if it's can't possibly, that sort of simplicity can't work today. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, and then the other statement or a series of statements that I'll share is at one point, Dennis Hopper says, you know, if they had news on television all day long, I'd watch it. <laughs> and because at that time, CNN, it was, I think, a couple years before CNN mm -hmm. existed. They did not have cable news. And Wells challenges him and he says, but is TV sufficient? Aren't you getting the TV's version of the news? And he's shocked that Dennis Hopper thinks you could possibly get sufficient news from the television. And that, to me, is an actual level of prophetic wisdom from Wells in particular mm -hmm. to, to, to know at that moment that you perhaps could not, should not be getting your news from, from whatever TV is going to put on there. Because, yeah. you know, TV, you know, you have things like PBS, you have the nightly news, but it was almost as if there was something in him that knew that if you're getting around the clock news on TV, then they have to pay for airing it around the clock. And mm -hmm. so it's not, you know, it's going to be a cable version. It's going to be a sensationalized version of the news. And it's also going to be that, a single hit pretty hard, a single source, which, you know, if you're watching, you know, PBS NewsHour, then you can follow, you can hear a story and say, hmm, I want to know more about that. And then go read about it in the paper or however you're going to find out about it, listen to it on the radio and find out another side of it. Whereas if you're just tuned into one channel, they're going to talk that story to death and you're going to feel like you know everything about that story, even though you've only had it filtered through one source. Right. TV, right. You become the cable news couch expert. Yes. Yeah. So that, that's, those are my number 10, a mix of Quotes I actually enjoyed and I thought were really mm -hmm. interesting, but also that just felt particularly appropriate and incisive for the for the moment. Yeah, that's uh, I'll have to catch up with that. I did not see Hopper Wells, but it does sound fascinating. I recommend it in part because it really made me miss adult conversation. <laughs> uh, so maybe I wouldn't have appreciated it like three years from now or two years yeah. ago. Uh, but in this moment, just two guys talking on a range of issues from life to love to art to religion to everything. It's like I said, it's indulgent at times. But right now, when none of us can indulge in that sort of conversation, it's maybe the best time to watch it. Yeah, I'll have to do it before I get that vaccine and just go, go <laughs> wild. So. 
So do we do we want to do snake? Sure. My number nine is casting, and it, this is this mm. will be a quick one. It is the casting of Ben Affleck in The Way Back. It's not a difficult casting. It's not a difficult casting choice, but I could see a casting director shy away because perhaps it's too on the nose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then casting is two ways. It's a casting director and a director in the studio. And it's also the actor agreeing to take that role. And from his perspective, it's that the vulnerability that it takes and the courage that it takes to play that role after his very public difficulties with alcoholism, his very public decline out of the, you know, good graces of Hollywood. Uh, And to take on this role that is, it's definitely melodramatic in certain ways that uh, could cast his journey in in like a positive light in some ways, but it also doesn't paper over the bad stuff. And he clearly taps into uh, his personal experiences. Mm -hmm. And so I just think the combination again of, you know, Gavin O'Connor, the director of the way back, the casting director being willing to say, you know, we're going to go with the, the, maybe the obvious choice and the on the nose choice, but we're going to do this. And Ben Affleck saying, yes, I think I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. No, I mean, you're, you're not wrong. It's uh, a great Affleck performance and uh, you know, they clearly got the most out, out of that. And it's hard to imagine that movie working as well without, you know, us knowing who Ben Affleck is and, and kind of, unfortunately, you know, I mean, it's sad that we probably shouldn't know so much about Ben Affleck's personal life. But, but it's weaponized here in a way that's really smart by both Affleck and the, the creative team. It's similar to Gone Girl in, in a way, the other Affleck, key Affleck performance of the last decade. It is. That's a good point. And I think it's, you know, it's the, there are obviously a lot of different, there's a lot of nuance to casting, but there are certain people who you cast them for what the public knows about them and what the public sees them as. Mm-hmm. And then there are other people that, you know, you're casting for look, you're casting for type, for acting type, you're casting for acting ability, chemistry with their, with their scene partner, ability to chew dialogue, whatever it may be. But some people it's, you know, we're going to play their star persona. We're either going to feed into their persona or we're going to use it to subvert. You know, yeah. we're going to cast... Clooney as a goofball like the Coen brothers did or, mm-hmm. Renee, or you know and so and and Aff- and this one despite Affleck having fallen from stardom they were still able to use his star persona and build it into the performance and the casting so those are very smart yeah I agree all right my number nine uh is going to be I have it labeled as just the the visual effects of Possessor, the Brandon Cronenberg movie. But I kind of wrap into this, the whole visual design of the movie. So I'm wrapping in the production design and the art direction. So I'm cheating a little bit, a little bit too. Uh, Give or take Tenet. This is the movie that I think just has the visual, kind of the science fiction visual language that has stuck with me you know, the most throughout the year. And, and we saw this back at Sundance. We saw it at a midnight showing. Um, and, and it's a movie that stuck with me the entire year. And mainly just for 
a, a handful of images that are so impressive and so creepy and just unsettling um, that are done really, uh, you know, not on a crazy high budget. It's a lot of practical and kind of in camera effect work. There's, there's a, a sequence in particular where, you know, one character essentially takes the face of another character and puts it on them and wears it like a mask, but it's like a Michael Myers mask and it doesn't fit properly. And it is the single most unsettling image from, from the year, but also the one that like flashes into my head all the time. And, and, you know, it's a a large crew of visual effects designers that, uh, you know, are clearly trying to do something that can live up to the Cronenberg name. And uh, this movie does, has a lot to say about a lot of things and it can get a little muddled, but when you walk away from it, you feel like you got what it's trying to say just because of the imagery that it has subjected you to. You know, I think that I have not, as a young film goer, I was, I, I was, mostly focus on like the plot and the script. And from my perspective, like it was all about what was written and then said and happened on screen, which I think is how a lot of sort of like people who just go to movies to enjoy them, see movies. Mm -hmm. And I still don't think I'm fully caught up to the point where I appropriately, appropriately appreciate the value of visuals in the moment. Because I remember coming out of Possessor and being wowed by so much of what I saw, but very much feeling like it didn't quite click for me. And I didn't quite get what Cronenberg was saying. I got what he was going for, but I didn't get what he was saying, mm-hmm. which is it, which is to my like to one part of my brain an insult or criticism, but to another part, it it, it it's not. Like that's fine. I don't need to get exactly everything he was saying. He doesn't need to spell it out for me. And I need to learn to be okay with that. But what I, what I realized is so many times I'll leave a movie and say, yeah, that, those are really impressive, impressive visuals. But then eight months later, it's like, oh yeah, those, those are the only things I remember from the year in movies yes. <laughs> are the most yeah. impressive visuals. Like those are the things that stick with you. Even if I personally don't realize it always in the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're exactly right. The Possessor has more of them than any movie this year. More moments yeah. that will, whether, you know, Sometimes they're, they stick with you because they haunt you. Sometimes because they, you know, they break your heart. Sometimes because they make your heart swell. In this case, it's mostly haunt, but they, they stick with you. Yeah, the kind of, uh, I, I agree with everything you're saying about kind of the, you know, it, it taking a while to realize you just need to, you know, sometimes plot and character and whatever, it's not the most important thing in the world. Um, and I, I kind of lump all, there's, you know, the movies that I really love because of their, they're naughty plotting or their character work or whatever. And then there are the vibe movies and there's a bunch yeah. of vibe movies that I love. And like possessor is a vibe movie. Uh, it's just a weird, scary vibe. But, so you're saying uh, double feature this with Miami vice. Yes. I mean, I was going to, I was going to say that is the, that is where I at first, that's the movie that more than anything else, like clicked with me is like, Oh yeah, I just, I don't understand what's happening in this movie, but I don't <laughs> I care it. because I love it so much because it just, I'm, there's all these emotions that are being sparked despite me like not really knowing what these characters are doing. I, I also, do you think that it's easier 
Now, obviously, it's easier to engage with any movie in a theater. It's easier to not look at your phone. It's easier to not be distracted by what's going on in the kitchen or outside or whatever. Obviously, give that up. But do you think there's an added benefit to being in the theater for a vibe movie because you really need to just give yourself up to it because of the fact that you need to, you need to suspend more disbelief than usual, let's say. Yeah. I mean, I mean, totally. It is, I have found over the year, I, I wish that I was a person who I am a person who loves movies and watches a lot of movies. And I wish I was a person who could say that every time I sat down to watch a movie in my home, I treated the movie as sacred and didn't do anything else, but that is not, the case like you know i'll check my phone or i'll like you know get up and get a snack or whatever without pausing the movie and or you know my girlfriend and i will have a like a conversation about what's happening on the screen like uh, these things all happen and that is part of just a and this year is interesting because i've become more okay with that i mean you know sometimes you can't just give yourself over and it doesn't it honestly doesn't devalue the movie to the way that I might've said a year ago. Um, You can still watch a movie, even if it's not the ideal circumstance, it can still be a great movie and you can still feel like it was a great movie. Um, But I agree with you that these movies that are not as heavy on plot or kind of confusing plot wise uh, and are these five movies, it's a lot, it's easy, it's too easy to check out quickly yeah if you're in a theater you are forced to not it. check out um and that can that can be a real benefit yeah that's a good way of putting it so this this was my number three okay i had narrowed it to like the makeup work mm-hmm. but but if i had thought of cheating i definitely would have done exactly what you yeah. did so yeah. i had just used my cheats elsewhere so that's sure. my, that's sure, yeah. that's this, my bad this is one of my my cheaters but yeah i'm glad yeah. uh glad it's on your list too and I was just wondering if we would have any overlap given the broad nature mm-hmm. of, of the assignment, but I'm, I'm glad we do. I'm glad yeah. we do. I wonder, I wonder, we may have a, may have a little more, I think, but. We might. Uh, all right. My number eight then is a performance from a movie that I wanted to like and kind of knew I wasn't going to. And that movie is I'm thinking of ending things, the Charlie Kaufman movie, which and we've talked about this a lot. And honestly, I probably mentioned it on the podcast, Charlie Kaufman, like Wes Anderson is if I had to name like two filmmakers who are generally, I think very well regarded in the film community who I just, I can't do it. I cannot, none of it clicks. Um, then it would be Wes Anderson and Charlie Kaufman. And this movie though features Jesse Buckley, who is, so so good and she almost pulled me through the movie she has just incredible versatility she has incredible emotional expressiveness she feels really natural in this movie that is very unnatural and is intentionally very unnatural and you know about probably halfway through the movie, I thought this was finally going to be the Charlie Kaufman movie that I really, really dug. Um, It goes downhill from there. And I think a large part of that is because she kind of gets moved to the 
periphery for reasons that I, I understand why he's doing it as much as you can understand anything Charlie Kaufman is doing. But I think, unfortunately, even though you have other people like Jesse Plemons who are really good, she is just so magnetic that when she is no longer the focus, it, the, the movie falters for it. And I think, I mean, that's really the sign of it's less a knock on the movie than it is a sign of how bright your star is. And, uh, and, you know, I, I, she's someone who I just can't wait to see anything she's in. If for how few things I've seen her in, if you tell me that Jesse Buckley is going to be in a movie, I'll probably see it. Yeah. And that, that was real quick that that happened. Mm -hmm. I cannot believe, I mean, you said versatility, and the word hadn't popped into my head, but I mean, I can't believe she was in Wild Rose and this within 14 months. I mean, are mm-hmm. you kidding me? Those are wildly different roles. Yeah. And, you know, to, to do Kaufman in one breath after having, you know, sung what should have been the song of the year at the Oscars mm. and, and was in my heart in the prior yeah, breath. Don't is remind just, me. I'm unbelievable. She's, she's, sort of ethereal but w- like while still remaining very like grounded yeah and yeah she's she's unbel- she's incredible i totally i love that pick i'm so glad we get to talk about it i think to your point on wes anderson and charlie kaufman i think one of the big things they share in common is that their movies live and die by for me by how much how effective the heart that they put into it is at, at coming through like Wes Anderson has these very meticulously designed crafted plotty movies. And Charlie Kaufman has these very brainy, also plotty, mm. very like meta exercises in thought. Right. And I can like, I can golf clap them. I can golf clap like the, the great head on camera work and the change in aspect ratios in grand Budapest. And I can golf clap the multiple narratives and whatever of adaptation or, or being John Malkovich, but I'm not really going to love the movie unless I connect with it and you need some way in. And you're totally right that for the first half of this movie, Jesse Buckley was the way in. And I, I think I ended up liking it a bit more than you. Mm-hmm. And, and it came around for me, but there was a, yeah. a half hour or so, in the middle towards the, the third quarter, we'll say that it started to lose me. But just like in Wes Anderson movies, like the most effective movies for me, the, I mean, I, I really like him, but you know, Rushmore, for example, like hits, I think it wears its heart on its sleeve in a, in a way that Grand Budapest and Moonrise Kingdom do as well, but mm-hmm. the others don't quite as much for me. And it's, yeah. it's, I can appreciate them without loving them unless they really like, you know, Synecdoche is the big Charlie Kaufman for me that works best. And it's Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance there, which is like the heart and soul of that movie. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you mentioned Rushmore and that's the Wes Anderson that really works for me. Synecdoche, Kaufman wise, does not. The one that works for me is something like being John Malkovich, where I think the way in is that it's Spike Jones um, directing it. And, and that works. Uh, and and there's some a tweak he makes. Both of these directors, they're very mannered and very specific and that is something that i mean you just have to get on board with it there's i'm sure there i I, i'm trying to think who it might be but i'm sure there are directors who are also very mannered and very specific but in a way that i connect with i mean maybe michael mann is someone like that to a certain extent um, where he's got a very specific aesthetic 
and it doesn't work for some people and it, uh, and it works for me, but, uh, and, and, you know, and that's, uh, and that's the thing I wound up writing about this movie is that like, you know, I get, it's not objective. It's not, you know, I'm thinking of ending things is a bad movie. It's a movie that just doesn't work for me. And that's like kind of the cool thing about movies is, you know, sometimes they just don't work for you, but you can see how they would work for other people. So what we're saying is Disney, mm-hmm. while we are not for corporate intervention with art, if you're going to demand reshoots on the French Dispatch, put in Jesse Buckley. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't hate it. And throw in Plemons, too. I mean, let's double Jesse. I mean, why not? I do love Plemons. He's so good. He's so good. Uh, okay, my we're on to my number eight, mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. All right, my number eight is... So this is how I kind of did my slight cheating. It's a quote and it's the actress and the performance that gave that quote. Okay. So the quote is this, again, it, it's, it's really connected with me and it connected with the moment. And it's a little stupid and a little ridiculous, but I just loved it and I remembered it. So I decided to go with it. It is from Buffaloed. Mm-hmm. The movie, mm-hmm. Yeah, the Zoe Deutsch vehicle, which Zoe Deutsch, wow. This Very movie, good. I think it's this movie is underrated, but there's no question that Zoe Deutsch is better than this movie and that she elevates it completely with just an absolute off-the-walls performance. And she ends the movie. So the entire movie is about her uh, becoming a debt collector and then turning around to take debt collectors down in, in, in Buffalo. And it is very much for me, what worked was the fact that it was like an Adam McKay movie without being quite as self-indulgent. It certainly had its wink at the camera moments and it's like explainery, let's explain how consumer debt collection works. But I thought it cared. And I thought because of Zoe Deutsch, I cared more and it cared more about her character than it did about uh, being really clever and witty and a takedown of the debt collection industry, although it was. And at the end of the movie, she has been very successful in uh, turning against the debt collectors. And she says, it's, it's, it's a pretty long quote, but she says, you know what? I'm done convincing myself that I was relieving your burdens when I was killing your dreams. You see, she, she's literally talking to the camera now, a very Adam McKay moment. I'm done selling nothing to those with less than nothing. I'm done. It's time my line of sight shifted to the people who have everything. So I'm moving on to the only hustle that's even more of an unregulated clusterfuck than debt collecting. And she exhales deeply. Let me tell you about hedge funds. And I was just like, it's, it's, it's a relatively like solid, basic mm-hmm. comedic moment, uh, mm-hmm. you know, pause before the punchline. But I just hate hedge funds so much. And I hate <laughs> Wall Street so, so much that it was so gratifying. It, I, I just, it was so perfect. And we just spent two hours like dealing with the scum of the earth, but they were blue collar scum. Like these mm-hmm. debt collectors were not wealthy people. Yeah. And, and the people they were collecting debt from were not wealthy people. And the community was not wealthy and she was not wealthy. And then it was like the only people worse than these cockroaches mm-hmm. are the rich cockroaches. Yeah. Fuck yeah. I yeah. love that. I agree. It's a, it's a great kind of button on the movie. Um, a movie that's strange i i want to say that movie is the good big short because i don't like the big short that much but it's not really i mean they i I think it's a bit stronger honestly um 
uh, from a script perspective in the big short, but in this one you have Zoe Deutsch who is excellent, but in the big short you do have like three, a couple more performances that I think really carry the movie. So it all balances out. Um, we probably don't need too many more of these, but I did quite enjoy Buffaloed. All right. So now my, my number seven, mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. This is the sound design on The Sound of Metal. Mm. It's Darius Martyr's drama starring Riz Ahmed. About a, he, he plays a drummer who loses his hearing. And in addition to being, it's, it's not just the technical accomplishment. I mean, just someone who was clearly so dedicated to building a soundscape that represented what it meant to lose your hearing and, and, and live in, in, a world, in the world. But it was the way it used sound as a tool for empathy. Uh, there was a scene in particular where you see it's, you know, Riz Ahmed's character has just arrived at this community and he's sitting at a dinner table with a group of folks who have all lost their hearing and they are all using sign language and they're communicating non-verbally, non-verbally not just sign language, but body language physically. And he is still learning. He, he can't hear them, but he also can't understand sign language. And there are all like the way that the scene works is when it's from his perspective, you can't hear anything and you just see them all moving and it's really lively. And then it shifts to basically sort of like a third person omniscient narrator perspective where you can hear and there are pots clanging, chairs squeaking while they're moving around, like elbows knocking, and you hear all the sounds, even though no one's talking. And then it shifts back to Riz Ahmed's focus. And so it, it like puts you really in his, or does as best, as good of a job as putting you in his position as possible, while also showing you like the life of this community that even though they can't speak as those of us who can hear are used to, are still communicating in such like an active, energetic, love-filled way. Uh, I, I just thought it was it was really, really smart. Yeah, I, I agree. That is, you know, that movie has a lot of standout elements, um, but that is clearly one of them. And, and really nice to see. I mean, that was clearly the focus of the filmmakers to, to show you worry about a. I was very excited about the movie, but you worry about a movie like that, that it's going to portray folks who, you know, that who have some, something going on um, and, and kind of othering them. And this is a movie that really doesn't, doesn't do that. And, and it's one of the best examples of not doing that um, and, and really being empathetic in a uh, like, collaborative way as opposed to just empathetic in a oh woe is you kind of way Rizamed's performance obviously also a standout mm-hmm. but yes yeah. save that for another time agreed all right my number seven is the comes from the movie that i think is kind of the most achingly beautiful movie of the year at least from a visual perspective um and that is nomadland and the cinematography by Joshua James Richards. I recently saw that they're gonna put Nomadland in theaters, but also in IMAX. And I read that and was so sad that 
I'm not going to go. I'm not, it's coming out in like a month. I'm not going to go to the IMAX theater and see No Man Land. I don't even think I'll be able to. I do not think theaters will be open in California, but that is a movie that is so well shot and every frame is this tableau, but not in a, it's, it, it, it sometimes it's static and sometimes it's moving, but it's all part of a piece and it's it's very reminiscent of Terrence Malick films. That's kind of the, the, it's the easy comparison, but it's the right comparison. Um, what Kojao and, and Joshua James Richards are doing, shooting a ton of that movie at kind of this magic hour of the day where you have the, the sun has just gone down and it's lighting everybody in a way that makes it seem like they are somehow more than human but also so distinctly human and you have these landscapes that you can't even kind of begin to to comprehend but suddenly they're in your living room or in the theater and uh it's all of a piece with this this film that is just about kind of the country and the people who are you know making the best of what's on, on often a uh, a tough situation, but but kind of like we talked about with something like Sound of Metal, they it it's so empathetic and collaborative, and and makes you realize that there's there's often more to the world than than maybe we realize, and uh, it it just I mean that's something that I just kind of stared at the whole time, um, just because it looked so so impressive, and uh, and you know kudos to to Richards and to Zhao and they are, they're dating, which is fun. He shoots all her movies, but they're like a couple, which I, which is a little factoid that I very much enjoy. Um, clearly a good, good working relationship there. It's paid off. Do not break up. Do not be like Ben Affleck mm-hmm. and Anadarmus. I need uh, more collaborations from them too. Oh, I just saw that they might be not broken up. That's the, really? the new rumor. I was hoping this entire thing was a PR campaign for uh, Dark Waters or whatever their upcoming Adrian yeah, Line movie is. Yeah, but we'll see. I now I have to now I have to look that up. That would make my heart happy. I uh, no, that was that was a really beautiful description of that movie. Thank you for that. Yeah, the movie rules. Very nice. Yeah, kicks ass. Nice. You uh, there? You go. Thank you for that beautiful <laughs> description. <laughs> there we go, and we're back. Uh, I the the Malik comparison is obviously like you said one that has has been made, but um, this movie re- reminded me, and in particular the camera work and the, the importance of the cinematography to this story being told, reminded me of Badlands, which is my favorite Malik. And what it, what they both did for me was to center these v- stories of human struggle amidst unparalleled beauty in a way that I think, you know, it gets you thinking about the sort of, trying to think of the right word, like the standoffish beauty of nature and of this giant, gorgeous world around us uh, and how inconsiderate it is of our lives and our feelings. And in particular, also how beautiful each of these stories is, even if it's a story of hardship and struggle uh, and, and, and drifting and trying to find connection like Nomadland or a story of you know, a criminal on the run. 
what those two movies share in common is that search for connection in our in our relationships amidst this uh you know amidst this gorgeous landscape but i just i think in in both instances the the it's not just cinematography for cinematography's sake it's not just oh my god look at the beautiful mountains look at the look at this vista give me an oscar you know what i mean it 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 is a lens that goes through the characters and out into the broader world with every mm-hmm. shot, even if the characters aren't actually in it. And yeah. I think that's, that's really important. Uh, and so I appreciated that. That's, yeah, that's, that's an excellent, excellent point. Um, and, and leads right in actually to my number six, uh, another movie that I think is of, of a piece with those, um, Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> I saw you were taking I, a drink there, so I had to rush I, through. Oh, I almost spit it out. I, before you even go, I have to say, I already mentioned Sarah and I watched this, uh, you know, video countdown of the top 25 movies. Mm -hmm. It heavily featured Eurovision movies or music and it heavily featured scenes from Eurovision. Yeah. And after each one, we just turned to each other and we were like, shit, do we have to watch Eurovision? This looks like it rules. Yes. So here's the thing with Eurovision. It feels like it should rule. In my opinion, it does not rule. In my opinion, it is too long and doesn't really know what it is. Oh, is this going to be a performance in a movie you don't like? Yes. Oh, darn. I thought this was going to be a movie. No, unfortunately, no. Although I did very much consider the song Yaya Ding Dong from Eurovision (laughs) as as going on this list because I do listen to that song a lot. Um, And the music in Eurovision is fun, but it's a little too flabby and it has a weird combination of like really straightforward earnestness that really doesn't mesh well with some of the other kind of Will Ferrell type comedy that you might expect and that I did expect going in and so maybe it's an expectations thing in some ways but uh, it's a movie that really didn't click for me except it does feature our greatest comedy star Rachel McAdams thank you is so good in all movies and especially in comedies as we've learned but she uh she's really excellent in Eurovision and she's like clearly the heart of the movie and this this issue that I have with it where it can't really like figure out whether it wants to be kind of biting comedy or this kind of weird earnestness it can't figure that out but she figures it out and she actually blends those two tones really well and it basically only comes through through her performance and uh and that is a not easy to do um it's not easy to have in uh in one performance um especially when the movie around you isn't you know the tightest around but uh but she does it we know she can do it um she should be in you know every comedy and uh and we love her a national treasure we love her. Oh no, you died. That moment in game night. It just there there's a moment she she basically like goes back to the hits and, and has a similar uh line in this uh where where she goes, the elves, they've gone too far. Uh which is funny out of context and, and funny in context. And also funny. She sells it. Um speaking of going speaking of going back to the hits. Are you aware of the the Nick Cage movie? The Nick Cage movie coming out in March. 
in which he is forced to reenact his greatest roles? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I am aware of them. The unbearable weight of talent. What, is that what it's called? Like It's something, I, it has a long title like that. Yeah, um, yeah. The unbearable weight of massive talent. I think that might be it. Something along those lines. I'm very excited yes. about it. Yes, the unbearable weight of massive talent. Let's go. Okay. Pedro Pascal, Sharon Horgan, Tiffany Haddish, and Neil Patrick Harris are the sporting cast. Incredible. I love it. All right. Jumping into my number six, I believe. Correct. It is the editing of the, of the documentary Time, which is uh, Garrett Bradley directed this Sundance documentary from last year about Sybil Fox Richardson, just goes by Fox Rich. She is the, she is an entrepreneur. She is an author. She is a mother of six. Uh, she is the uh, wife to a man who was arrested and, and put in jail serving a 60 year sentence for robbery. And, you know, it's interesting, Garrett Bradley made this movie or Garrett Bradley shot this movie in a very, We'll just, you know, we'll say very relatively typical documentary style. Uh, got to know Fox Rich, shot a lot of footage of her over the last couple years after getting to know her, you know, giving lectures at her son's college, shot, shot footage of her sons and, and the men that they grew up to be. Got to know her about, about 20 years after her husband had initially gone to prison. And at the end of filming uh, as... Garrett Bradley started putting this together. She reached out to Fox Rich and Fox had thousands of hours of footage, of home footage that she had taken over the last 20 years. So Garrett Bradley decides in that moment, which is just an amazing choice as a filmmaker, you know, so many filmmakers plan meticulously their movies out as they sort of need to, to get through them. And she just decided, you know what, I'm going to incorporate this footage. And she incorporated the footage and the entire movie, which is a, is, is a short, like I think under 90 minutes, it weaves together home footage across 20 years of Fox, of Fox's uh, young boys at the time growing up and just existing and living their lives. And she is going through the efforts of getting her husband out of jail and that is definitely a through line of the film, but it's not what it's about. And even the way that Garrett Bradley treats, uh, you know, some of the time jumps and she doesn't show the most dramatic moments on camera because that's not what it's about. It's just about what we lose when our loved ones are gone and how uh, the passage of time treats us when, when we're without that person. And the editing was so fluid and it never, you know, never jumped back and forth. It was never 1997, now 2017 or, you know, anything like that. It was, it was extremely, you know, it was almost treated like it was all just one single narrative, even though it, it jumped around in time. And uh, it, it made it extremely emotionally affecting for me and was just another, I think, good example of style in service of the substance of the film. Very, very good. Yeah, I, I agree. The the editing of that movie is is pretty astounding, um, and uh, and and clearly one of the one of the best documentaries of the year, one of the best films of the year. Um, I think you summed it up summed it up beautifully. Thank you. All right, uh, number five. It is a very similar movie to Time. It is called Freaky. Mm. The 
fantastic horror comedy by horror comedy expert Christopher Landon, who directed the uh, Jessica Roth star vehicles, Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to You. Superstar mm-hmm. should be Jessica mm-hmm. Roth. And so this is one of my cheats. It's a combination scene and performance of the person in the scene, and it's Vince Vaughn. So this movie is just Freaky Friday, but horror. Sure. Uh, when, when a man, Vince Vaughn, tries to murder a young woman, Catherine Newton, they switch bodies. And they have 24 hours. She, has, she finds out she has 24 hours to get back into his, her own body, and she has to do it by stabbing him with the same mystical knife. Very simple plot. It easily could have gone wrong as a film, and it doesn't. Uh, but there's a, there's, a, there's a moment late in the movie where the, you know, because it also plays as sort of a high school coming-of-age story, and Catherine Newton is sort of the, initially the stereotypical, uh, you know, plain high school student who it's picked on and gets shoved and is in love with the high school quarterback and doesn't think he notices her, but it turns out he does. Mm-hmm. But late in the movie, she's sitting in the back of a car with him and they've just kind of realized their feelings for each other, but she's in Vince Vaughn's body. Sure. And they kiss and it, they, I just, I, it is not the best scene of the year. It's not in my top 10 scenes of the year, but 99 out of a hundred times, 99 out of 100 directors play that scene for laughs. They play that scene for laughs and it's cringeworthy and it, it's not good mm-hmm. and, it, and you just hate it. It's slightly homophobic without trying to be and it's just bad. But it, yeah. this one is just, it's played purely for heart. It's completely earnest. He, you know, the, the, this young teenager leans over to, to kiss. I mean, he's not a teenager in real life, thankfully. Uh, <laughs> to kiss Vince Vaughn. And it's just, it's played a hundred percent straight up. And I, and, and I was shocked and I loved it. And it was representative of Vince Vaughn's entire performance, which again, he's playing a teenage girl trapped in mm-hmm. Vince Vaughn's body. And that le- that lends itself to so many low hanging fruit jokes. Yeah. And with the aside, with the aside of a single, like, oh my gosh, I can pee standing up joke. They mm-hmm. issued all of that Vince Vaughn's performance of like took a left turn every time you expected him to take a right. He committed really, really hard. It was, it was very enjoyable and, 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 and surprising in its ways. This, uh, this is actually probably the epitome of what we were talking about earlier, where I would have seen this movie, you know, the Thursday of its release and I haven't seen it yet because I didn't pay $20 to, right. to rent it. So um, it is on, it's on my, my catch up list for sure. All right, my number five is is a scene. Is uh, honestly pr- maybe my scene of the year from a movie that is not in my top ten, um, and it is the final scene of Thomas Vinterberg's Another Round, which is you know I, I don't want to go into too much detail um in in case people haven't seen this because it is just like a a moment of pure catharsis and it was a movie that i a movie that i liked i liked quite a bit um but didn't you know i think you liked it more than i did um 
But Mads Mikkelsen kind of has this moment of catharsis in the final scene, and they play this song, What a Life, by this Danish band, Scarlet Pleasure. Um, and it's a moment, it's a scene of like exuberance, and it's perfect. Um, and there's dancing and jumping and all sorts of energy uh, that, that kind of wraps up the entire thematic like through line of the film. Um, and I watched the movie and I finished it and I, and I, I reround it and I watched the scene like three more times. Um, and it, it's that good. And it's like, and it ends perfectly. Um, I, I really can't say, say enough about it. Uh, it. It's a movie that is, it's a movie that is worth watching for a lot of reasons, but is a movie that is literally worth watching for the final scene. It's, it's brilliant. It is. I, I fully agree. This is a great choice. I think the thing that comes to mind for me is this like organic bliss. The scene builds and builds and it almost feels like Mads Mikkelsen is just making these choices mm-hmm. in the moment. And you know, he's probably not, um, but that is the magic of every once in a while, the movies can do that and they can make you feel like this is, is both predictable and like this is how it had to end, but also yeah. just absolutely out of nowhere. And it's so natural and Mads Mikkelsen, after just a lifetime, I mean, he has played in numerous, uh, you know, substantive roles, especially with Thomas Vinterberg, but for American audiences, especially mm-hmm. a lifetime of playing the villain. Uh, I, I am so hopeful and grateful that this movie is getting, uh, you know, U.S. circulation and distribution. Yeah. Because it's, it's, you know, it's such an incredible performance. This, it's a great pick, great pick. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, my number four is I realized right now, I thought this movie was still uh, going to get released like this month. And I just learned uh, from double checking that it's actually not going to get released until the summer. So really this is a 2021 movie. So this will be something wow. for people to the look ultimate to. cheat. Yeah. I, I messed up a little bit here, but I probably... Um, you know, I, I don't know if I'd talk about this movie much otherwise, because again, this is a movie that I don't love, um, but has a performance that I think is really excellent. And the movie is Nine Days from Edson Oda um, that we we saw at Sundance uh, last year. And obviously it was pushed because of, it took a little while to get picked up and it got pushed because of COVID. And it looked like it was going to come out and be... Um, in an Oscar uh, qualifying contention, uh, but it's now going to come out this summer. But Winston Duke in it is really, really phenomenal. It's a movie that I'm not going to say too much about um, because no one has seen it and it's not going to get a chance to see it for a little bit. Uh, but it, it has a very high concept premise about kind of the afterlife and Winston Duke is the shepherd of the afterlife. And this is a guy who this is basically his third film role. You've got Black Panther and us, and then you've got some Avengers related cameos, but, but then you have this and, and he absolutely carries this movie. Um, And, and does a lot of it while being very quiet, except when he's not. And, uh, and it all kind of culminates in, in some acting in a sequence that is 
uh, frankly, like pretty astounding. Um, Winston Duke is a guy who he's, he's one to watch. He's going to get more, more work. Um, you're going to want to continue to get on, get on this train early. Yeah. I, you know, so we saw, like you said, we saw this movie at Sundance and then there, there was, uh, there was a, you know, a, a Q and a after, or a, a director and an actor Q and a and Winston Duke was there. And that it, while watching a piece of that, I learned that he had, he went to Yale school of drama and it explained a lot for reasons I can't go into, but without ruining something, but it also explained a lot just in terms of his presence. And like you said, it's a very quiet performance, uh, but he has this incredible just existence. And to the point where like I looked up his height after and he, he is not, I mean, he's, he's, he's a big guy, but he's not as big as I thought he was. And he just comes across as so substantial in every movement he makes and every word he speaks uh, and, and, and you're listening so closely and you're watching so closely. And I think I liked the movie more than you, but I still didn't like it quite as much as some folks. And I, I wish I liked it more because of how great he was in it. He's, he's. Yeah. And, and, and I should be clear, uh, you know, obviously the premise of kind of how I'm doing this, these are movies that I don't like that much, but um, that should in no, everyone should probably seek out this movie because uh, a lot of people and a lot of critics I respect uh, found this movie to be a transcendent like film going experience. And there's like, and I understand why it's not a, I don't know how they got there. It's, I very clearly see how they got there. It just didn't happen to me. Um, and it is worth watching for, for him and for some of the other actors, uh, like Zazie Beats. Um, but, but also for the chance that this could be a transcendent film experience for you. And until then, you can always check out Spencer Confidential, another, you know, very high concept film starring Mark Wahlberg on Netflix with uh, Winston Duke in it, which I didn't is realize. He, is he in that? Oh. Yes, he plays Hawk. Cool. So I have not seen it, but yeah, me neither. I assume Hawk is just a character who hawks goods, stolen goods, because I think that movie is that sophisticated. Yeah, that sounds about right. That's my prediction. Good stuff. All right. Good pick, good pick. I like that. I like this uh, movies I didn't love, performances I did love. I, I think that uh, that lends itself to some unique picks. I like this. Good work. All right, my number four is the score for Minari. Mm. It is it is a it is a piece of the movie. It is part of the movie's DNA. I mean, I am very interested always when I hear about the process of filmmaking and when folks like the composers get brought in do they get in do they get brought in like some especially some who work with directors over and over again do they get brought in before the filming you know in the storyboarding process and the writing process even rarely or is it after do you send them the footage and ask them to score it do you collaborate with them and it feels like Emil Mosseri the composer from Minari was brought in from day one I mean it is this very, very, I'm going straight from memory like a year ago, but it's very string heavy, it's very melodic. It is somehow understated whilst like, it's the type of thing where you notice it often, but it's never the focus. It's never the Hans Zimmer moment where you're like, ah, yes, this is the dramatic moment. I know what's coming. Not to, no, I mean, Hans Zimmer is amazing, it's, to be clear. <laughs> but it's just, it's not the same style, right? It's a yeah. different style. Um, 
And yet it is one of the rare scores in recent years where before the movie was over, I knew I would listen to it over and over and over again. Mm. Uh, often, oftentimes I revisit scores, but it's usually just, you know, later in the year I'm re-listening to them and I'm reminded of how much I love them. But I knew this like 30 minutes into the movie. I, I, I almost was that guy who asked the question at the Sundance screener after the movie and asked, because I wanted to ask like, how did you work with the composer to the director? Because I was so curious. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's that good. It's amazing. And I almost watched Kajillionaire just full, because it was scored by the same guy. And I, want, and I wanted to listen to it, but instead I just listened to the, to the score and it's very good. He, he, yeah. also, he also composed the score for The Last Black Man in San Francisco, which is, very is good. what a strong early career. I mean, one mm-hmm. of the next big composers, absolutely confident yeah. saying that. Yeah. Agreed. I, it's a it's a great score, um, and uh, it, it really it makes that movie sing in uh, in, in a lot of ways. So that's my three, or that's my four. My number three is Possessor. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, all right, I already went over that. Yeah. Yeah, Possessor. We love it. My number uncut. three. Yes, obviously you got to go uncut. Uh, that's the rule. It's the law. Uh, a, a marketing thing that I was very confused by uh, when I was trying I was worried to... we didn't see the right version when we saw it in theaters. Which would have been crazy because they were like checking our ID because there was a whole uproar at, at, at the festival about how gory it was. And don't get me wrong. That's the, the best marketing is... tool I've ever seen. Yes. Check your works. ID at the door because no one under 18 can see it. Yes. And it works, but then I'm like, yeah, I bet it's not that bad. But then it's like, oh, well, I don't know. That's pretty bad. Uh, a lot of, lot of like eye stuff, which is which is no good. Yeah, but uh, but yes, possessor uncut. My number three is also music related, and it is the needle drops in promising young woman, which I think top to bottom has like the best use of pop music in in a movie this year for sure, and and in a movie I've seen in in a while um from you've got your paris hilton you've got your britney you've got your angel of the morning uh you've got your rogers and hammerstein uh it's all there and it's all used to just wonderful wonderful effect I, i i did not think that one of my scenes of the year would be two people in a pharmacy dancing to stars are blind a song i have not thought about in God knows how long, but it's fantastic. Um, the, it, it is so smart. It's, it's something that can be overdone and can be done really poorly. Just this kind of layering in of catchy pop songs that just, you know, that are too on the nose and it makes you roll your eyes. But this is a movie that uses needle drops so well that in and at least in at least one particular instance late in the film uh the needle drop led to like a standing ovation in the theater um it's it's that good uh and i don't want to say too much more uh about it because i do want people to to seek out this movie it's my favorite movie of the year um and uh, available and now on VOD. available now worth and a lot every of, dollar absolutely absolutely and a lot of that has to do with um how smartly emerald finale 
the director kind of weaponizes this pop aesthetic from the visuals and the uh the the audio it's style with a purpose it's you know we talked Mm -hmm. about it with some of the other ones it is it's when someone does this stuff very poorly which in my opinion one of the worst examples is the the strangers series i don't know if you've seen the strangers horror series i have not i don't i don't like them and they are to me empty formalism and uh this is a great idea it's like the film version of all of the slowed down pop music trailers Mm -hmm. Uh, but to me, it's like when you know when someone does it poorly, it seems it's lazy. It seems lazy when someone does it well. It seems like courageous to have like risked totally screwing up and also just so so intelligent. And it is. It's done with a purpose. This is this is also one of the best cheats of this whole episode to do all of the needle drops mm-hmm. to keep it narrow to the needle drops, but go with set. It's phenomenal stuff. I mean, just inspirational. Uh, and that, that uh, the moment of applause at the end of the movie, I think it, it kept me going for nine months of plus yes. of home view of, of home viewing, remembering yes. what it was like when this just spontaneous everyone at the same moment decides, yep, we're clapping. Yeah, uh, usually a thing I don't like in the theater Hate it. because Hate usually it. because it doesn't happen in a movie like this. It happens when like whatever Yoda shows up in the. <laughs> 18th star wars movie like that's yeah. when it happens and you see it opening night and you you're mad about yeah. it but or it happens when earned... the credits roll and it's like right. the filmmakers aren't here they can't right. they're not you don't need to applaud like it's a live performance no uh but, but this, in this moment I mean, people were applauding the character yes it was, it was and like... it was it was great and it was not the last movie it was far from the last movie not that far unfortunately from the last movie uh we saw in theaters before before quarantine but it is like in my mind, it's kind of the last one we saw yeah. because of these moments. Um, yeah, great, great movie. Uh, my number two, not a great movie, but again, <laughs> a great performance. And that performance is uh, Vanessa Kirby and Pieces of a Woman. Um, a, a movie that I thought maybe was going to be a great movie uh, after a really, really astonishing, like, opening sequence um the movie goes downhill from there uh vanessa kirby you know plays a woman who um suffers a a tragedy and and um in childbirth and carries that through the movie in a way that is like heartbreakingly realistic um, and it's another one of these kind of quiet performances where you're getting everything from just the smallest little things that she chooses to do. It, it's not big at all, but it is really kind of staggeringly powerful. It is doubly impressive because she is working from a script that I think is really, really heavy-handed kind of cliche laden um you know you know i i understand that it's it's kind of a personal script for the filmmakers and so i don't want to um you know be too too negative but it's uh but but i find that it just doesn't do what it what it should do but it doesn't really matter because she does transcend um the, the words that she has given and and goes beyond the words on the page to you know, to show you why 
film is at its heart a a visual medium because um and because uh, you're seeing it in her face the the reality of of her life um and it's uh one one of the best performances of the year um from any movie uh and and she she's another person who's going to go on to i think be be very big she'll be a star she's gonna blow up she's gonna blow up absolutely you just can't take your eyes off her you absolutely can she has that quality yeah it is there's a scene the the opening like 20 25 minutes are obviously harrowing in a way that is relatively unparalleled in most things i saw but there's there's another scene later in the movie that's a bit smaller emotionally but it's there's sort of like a dinner party at her family's house you know, she doesn't get along well with her family, but she goes over there and her husband and her brother-in-law, played by Benny Safdie, mm-hmm. are having a, uh, you know, she's obviously gone through this tragedy. Much of the movie is about, like, all the different types of annoying, terrible, shitty ways that people treat you in the aftermath of a tra- tragedy, whether it's this fake sympathy, whether it's nosy, whether it's controlling, telling you what's best for you, you know, fake cheery, whatever it is. And she goes over to her, her family's house for dinner and her husband and her brother-in-law are clearly just trying to make lighthearted conversation. They clearly don't want to talk about a heavy stuff. They're literally talking about, they're talking about the white stripes for like five minutes and the camera's on them when they start the conversation. And then the camera immediately moves to her and they continue the conversation the conversation. We can hear the conversation. That's like the front of the audio track, but the camera stays on her and she's separate. She's in a different room for a lot of it. And it's, it, it, to me, it, 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 staying with her, she did such a good job of, showing what it means to be dealing with a tragedy, but forced dealing with trauma, but forced to interact in this just banal way in these everyday conversations and just screw all these people trying to talk about normal things, but also trying to talk about serious things, just trying to like, and like showing her, she could clearly hear them because we could hear them, uh, but she wasn't engaging with it at all. And I just, it, it's, it was such a nuanced moment. And it was one of the few, I thought, nuanced moments, like you said, of the, of the, the last hour, hour and a half. Um, I really enjoyed that part. And she, I mean, the whole movie, she was phenomenal. But that was one small, small moment that stuck out for me. Yeah, I, I agree. I do want to bring up, I, I don't think we've talked about this movie since you saw it. Uh, j- just a, a small tangent. I am not someone, I am someone who understands that uh, movies about like real life professions would be bad if they were exactly like followed how those professions were. Specifically, I I am we are lawyers and we but we understand that oh, movies <laughs> like about talked about this about lawyers like shouldn't just be true to life because lawyers are boring a lot of the time. That being said, this movie's version this movie's legal subplot which then becomes like the a plot of this movie is batshit it is just so so unbelievably inane like it it makes victim of a felony walks up to the judge and say can i just say something to the jury first and the judge is like sure every every (laughs) bit of it um is is wild and i understand this movie is now out on netflix so you know pause if you or fast forward if you don't want to get spoiled for this movie but 
that's not even to mention that like the B plot is that the the like civil pros the, the prosecutor, not the civil prosecutor, the, the regular prosecutor, the criminal prosecutor is like having an affair with the husband. It, it's like and is related to the and is related. And is related. That can't be allowed. Like it's definitely not allowed. None of it's allowed. It and is, also repeatedly tells them, "Yeah, no, we have it in the bag. We're definitely winning." Yes, it is. Like the, the it's it's crazy, and and it's it's a strange, strange move. And I understand. I do not. I do not think that the filmmakers are American, but they did choose to set their film in Massachusetts. Boston, which this is my other tangent. I have no, I'm sorry, but I have never seen a movie that makes less effort to appear to be filmed where it's set. Zero effort. There are so many distinctive features of Boston. This was clearly set in Canada. There is French on the airport door when he goes to the air, whatever. But, but no, just no research into like how the American legal system even like kind of works. It's like they didn't even watch a movie set in the american legal system like that's how crazy it is uh and i just couldn't normally i'm i am very forgiving of that kind of stuff i am not the kind of person who like nitpicks and says you know this isn't well this isn't really how it happened but no one would walk out of that movie and be like oh yeah that was reasonable what happened in that courtroom uh during the felony trial insane but a, a very large digression yeah it's uh but vanessa kirby great Yes, Phenomenal. yes, we love and her. The World to Come, which is coming out this year and supposedly very, very good. Very excited. It's exciting. She's great in a Mission Impossible Fallout. She is. <laughs> I think that might be the only other thing I've seen her in. I'm going to quickly mention an, like a, an honorable that I, I forgot to throw out earlier. And it seems like you're not going to... Well, you might. I'm gonna, I, I won't mention it because I don't want to take away your... Thunder, just in case. You could, it could, I could see it happening. Oh no, you didn't do performances from movies you liked, right? Correct. Correct. Okay, so my honorable mention that I just want to mention is Carrie Coon, who is unbelievable in the nest. Yes, she is. A fantastic movie, and she just, it's just incredible. Uh, but my number two is Delroy Lindo, and in particular, Again, this is one where I'm pairing a performance with a moment, and it is in particular that final speech that he makes, Mm -hmm. direct to camera, stumbling through the woods in Vietnam, injured, chased, and it is, I think we've talked about this, I think we even may have talked about this on a podcast, but it is the definition of you can be, big is not the same as over the top, you can be big without being over the top, it's difficult, but this is one to show actors uh, who want to go big without, you know, going over the top it's it's so rooted in two hours worth of pent-up emotion two hours and, and two decades that we see of pent-up emotion that it feels so real and grounded and also Lindo is just so so good and and plays this Vietnam vet in, in such a lived-in way that you just can't help but buying in and investing in him um, I also think well, I do not necessarily think... So there was some disagreement uh, between Spike and Delroy over the fact that Spike wanted him to be a Trump-supporting MAGA uh, black Vietnam vet. Delroy mm-hmm. Lindo is very not, very much not a supporter of Trump. And he was initially taken aback by that. But he, that clearly did not impact the way he played the role. 
he played it with every ounce of empathy that he could and commitment that he could to what this man believed in and why he believed it and the sort of, you know, the sort of injustices that he felt subject to over the course of his life that he both actually was and, and in other cases maybe was more of a, you know, just a, a, an exercise in, in the blame game. And all of it just built to this moment at the end of the film. And it, I, it's just one of those where at the end of it, you're like, oh shit, I have to breathe. I forgot. Or like, oh my God, I've been gripping the edge of this chair and my fingers hurt because I didn't even realize it. And it's been five minutes. It, it was one of those moments for me. Yeah, I, you're right. I think we, we talked about, you know, it, it took up a, a lot of airtime on, on our Divide Bloods episode just because it is so powerful and, and so mesmerizing. And he is obviously you know, one of the greats and, uh, um, um, you know, maybe he'll get, maybe he'll get recognized, uh, this, this year. Um, but a great, a great pick. All right. Now I'm at my number one. Mm-hmm. The big reveal. The big reveal. My number one is another cheat tie. Okay. But I don't actually feel that badly because one of one half of the cheat you have already given actually. Mm. And it is the final scene in another round. I was wondering, was, I was a little worried I might step on your toes, but No, that's all right. I this another round, as you alluded to, is one of my favorite movies of the year. I thought it blended the absurdity of the concept of, you know, four middle aged teachers who decide to keep their BAC at a constant point oh five. Uh Theoretically, to test this philo- this Danish philosopher who says that human beings were born with a negative BAC, essentially. But in reality, and we sort of all know it, it's, it's to inject their monotonous li- middle-aged lives with some form of energy that could hopefully replicate you know, the way they felt when they were younger. I think, it, I think it marries the absurdity and the comedy with the, uh, the heart and the sort of sad nostalgia of, of middle age really, really well. And it does it through all four performances. All four men are, are unbelievable, including Mads, obviously. But I thought Thomas Bolarson was uh, really emotionally affecting. Mm-hmm. But that final scene, like I said, you know, it's this organic bliss that just seems to come out of nowhere. And the scene that I paired it with, since we already talked about, about that scene a lot, the scene that I paired it with is this scene late in a... a, a criminally underseen movie called apples which Mm. is a greek film that it played at venice and then it it played at the online version of the american film institute's eu film festival and it was released in greece it does not have u.s distribution yet but it kate blanchett serves an executive as an executive producer so i'm hoping it does it's by a guy named christos niku Mm -hmm. who is very much a a Spiritual successor to Yorgos Lanthimos, the director of The Favorite and The Lobster. And it is essentially about a man who gets amnesia. And what's happening is in in this society, a lot of people are getting sudden amnesia, which doesn't really matter in the sense of, oh, there's a pandemic, because the movie doesn't care about anyone but this man named Aris. Mm -hmm. But he there is an infrastructure in place for dealing with the amnesia. That's to the extent that it matters. And he is basically sent back out into the world and given assignments to go do things, go crash a car into a tree and take a photo of it and write a diary of it. And it's to create these new memories, essentially. 
But there's a scene uh, where he goes to a club and all these people are dancing and he is not, he's off to the side, he's awkward, he's weird. Then he kind of starts moving, he starts moving slowly, gets more and more into it, and then he just slowly, eventually lets loose on the dance floor. And it mirrors the scene at the end of, the, uh, of another round in its sort of organic buildup. And the idea of someone with no memory and therefore both no instinctive memory of how to dance, but also no shame memory, no emotional memory for telling him not to dance alone like an idiot in the middle of a dance floor and telling him not to experience the joy that so many people get through that sort of movement and that sort of catharsis of movement. And both of those are scenes where like the magic of dance and like the elation that comes with dance actually really impacted me emotionally in ways that normally that sort of thing doesn't for me, just doesn't work as well for me. Uh, I was very surprised by both of them. And, and they, yeah, they felt like a natural pairing for, for my number one moments of the year. Very much stuck with me. That's great. Yeah. I, I have not seen, seen apples, uh, apple, single apple, apples, apples, Multiple. um, but to put it on the list, but, uh, you know, not, uh, perhaps an honorable mention, I'd even throw in uh, a lot of Lover's Rock in yes. in there as these, uh, you know, another dance-filled, you know, really a, a movie that's almost one big scene of, of dancing, but um, the, the joy of kind of that communal thing is uh, really hit, hit hard this year. Um, great, great pick. My number one is, so th- this year, obviously we've been, I have been working from home. Um, something I, when I work, uh, particularly when I'm like at, at home, sometimes when I'm at work, but obviously when you're at work, you, you know, there are other people around, it's hard to do. But when I'm just working at home, I listen to film scores pretty much constantly. Um, I have a harder time listening to like regular, to like, music with lyrics. Um, I find that a bit more distracting, but I listen to film scores all the time. And, and there's always a score or two every year that just hits me. And that's the one. And then I listen to it all the time this year. That was more important than I think any other year to have some score that I really, really loved. And this year it is Tenet, the Score not by Hans Zimmer, but by Ludwig Göransson of uh, Black Panther and Creed fame. And as I learned when I was Googling uh, him, I did not realize that he scored Community and Happy Endings and New Girl. I did not realize he was a big TV guy. Um, And and, and like a lot of Childish Gambino's. Yes, and he's a big, big producer for... Uh, Childish Gambino. Um, His Mandalorian score is, is really excellent. But... Um, you, you talked about Minari and how, you know, you instantly in that movie, you know, you're like, I, I'm going to want to listen to the score afterwards. That was me with Tenet. Um, you know, I saw it and walked out and I'm like, I am really angry that the score has not been released yet. Um, and I can't listen to it yet. But, uh, but as soon as I was able to, I, I put it on, it is so... It, 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 it's, it's similar in a lot of ways to, you know, the Zimmer scores uh, for Christopher Nolan movies, but it's clearly very much its own thing. It's a similar vibe, but with a new, a new spin on it. And it's so propulsive and 
so in tune with the movie thematically. Obviously, it's a big action score. There's no hiding that, but it just works so well. And and I listen to it all the time. I think it's I think it's excellent. And you know, in another year, maybe you know, a score may not have been my my absolute number one thing, but it but having movie scores this year in particular was so important to my ability to just be able to function and like do my work at home. Um, that it was hard to have have anything else. And this year, this year was tenant. Okay, I have I have nothing to add and certainly nothing to take away. Phenomenal pick. I, we all we all love Tenet and Christopher Nolan saved movie theaters and it was a temporal pincer movement. We all know it. That's what happened. What happened? Yeah, it's it, I mean big shoes to fill for Gorenson. And that's you know what I mean, to, to yeah. walk in there <clears throat> after Zimmer has done so many Nolan movies. And yeah. although they've got the same the park, they've got the same number of Oscars. So, uh, <laughs> there you go. You know. Ouch. Tough, tough. <laughs> it is. It's tough stuff. All right. Well, I think that's, uh, those are our lists. Our, our lists to, you know, those are the 20 best things in movies. 19 best things in movies. Since we yeah. had some overlap. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 18 and a half. Yeah. Uh, that was it. That's all of them. Uh, nothing else good. I would say. Nope. That was it. But there were 18 good things in movies this year. An exhaustive list. Trash. Yes. Garbage. No, that was fun. This is a fun, uh, a fun exercise to do. It really makes me, makes me think uh, more about the movies than uh, just as, as whole entities really makes you think about the, all the moving pieces that, that go into it. So. Yeah. It makes me appreciate new and other things that I might not spend that much time thinking about and uh, praising. And like, I, you know, I appreciate that you specifically targeted some movies that you didn't love and might otherwise have just not thought about again, you know? Yeah. Except for a, when they came up in conversation, but this, this is a good way to honor those, those good pieces that are in the not quite great holes. Yeah. It's a fun, that, that I have found in recent years to be a particularly fun exercise to do just to think about most movies have some sort of value. That's kind of my thing. I know, I know people, it, it's fun to kind of shit on bad movies, but you know, a lot of people work hard on movies and sometimes they are kind of unredeemable garbage, but I think that's actually the exception. Usually there's a couple things that, that are good. Um, but sometimes you movie. have Robert Pattinson playing an Appalachian preacher in the devil all the time. So, you know, there you go. You these, there you go. You moments of beauty amidst the chaos. There is the, the other quote I was going to share and it's very real from Hopper Wells. And it's very relevant to what you just said is at the mm-hmm. beginning Hopper Hopper Dennis Hopper says, uh, he says, anybody who's made any kind of movie at all is way ahead. And just the commentary on, on yeah. how difficult it, it, it really is to put, uh, to put a movie together. Totally. Uh, and how, much, how much praise you deserve, no matter how it comes out. So Hot take. Movies. Movies are good. Movies good. Movies tough to make. Good job. Yeah. Good art. Congratulations. All right. Well, well, we'll wrap up on that note. We are back at it in the new year. We are wrapping up some of our uh, end of 2020 articles over the next week. And then we'll be moving on to February, celebrating the first, or I guess second release in the new misguided distribution strategy of Warner Brothers and HBO Max, uh, The Little Things, starring Denzel Washington. And we will be celebrating Denzel Washington 
as our February spotlight on Rough Cut Cinema. Also, Check Back will be covering the uh, Sundance Film Festival, the 2021 virtual edition. So uh, there were there were a handful of Sundance movies on this on this list. So stay tuned to our coverage because it might uh, might show up this time again next year.